The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author and teacher Ken Murray. We're going to be talking about his new novel, Eulogy. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Ken. Oh, thank you, Catherine. It's my pleasure. Well, I guess you, you are a, a teacher, an author, and you teach in Canada at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies and Halliburton School of the Arts. Um, the, the title sort of the, like, well, it's, it's a eulogy, a novel, but um, raised on televangelism. The book is all about evangelical, about a family, about a, the protagonist is a, is a young man who was raised by two, his parents were evangelical um, parents, a household, and uh, the, the whole story is about, I guess, and I should let you describe it, but uh, the effect well, that it had, has had on him. Yeah. And just secondly, before you begin, and then you yeah. can carry the ball, but um, it's a novel, it's not a memoir, but it, yet it is somewhat based on your experiences growing up, as I understand it. Well, uh, thematically, uh, it is in in the sense that I did grow up in a uh, uh, in a household in a religion that was a fundamentalist Christian. Okay, so that is the yeah. background I grew up in, and that's how I was raised, and that's what I knew growing up. And you know, my experience of life was coming to understand that I didn't that that didn't work for me, and I had to kind of find my own way to relate. Um, you know, and then, then you know, you mentioned raised on televangelism. That's actually an essay I wrote recently for the Humanist, which um, talks about that memory of you know, as the title says, um, in this book, which you know is fiction, and eulogy is very much fiction. But the, the one, you know, uh, the themes in play, um, William Oakes, the central character, is dealing with a lot of different things, and as he tries to come to grips with uh, his own past and his relationship to his parents in the wake of their death their deaths. Uh, you know, it's not giving anything away to say that early on in the book, uh, in, in the story that's told in eulogy, his parent, William's parents die in a car accident. And he, being a guy who's kind of, uh, not entirely, but pretty close to estranged from them, and an only child, is all of a sudden drawn back to, you know, deliver the eulogy at their funeral and encounters all the things he ran from, including the religion, including, uh, call it the toxicity of their marriage, and uh, and that affects him heavily, and he has to deal with that. And also, what you know, what comes out in the story is how it has always affected him. But here now, it's much clearer. He, he's a guy who's hurt himself and who's really secluded himself. Um, but Ken, what was the, what would you say the difference is? I mean, this you know, um, between, between my you, life and this yeah, one, yeah, between or between you and and him and. Uh, and that character, uh, what are, what are well, the major differences as you describe him? 
in, in terms of the facts of, of, of his life, he's uh, someone who practices self-harm, and thankfully I've never found that route. Um, these aren't my parents in this story. Um, and, you know, and he, and he, you know, he's not me. I mean, just the conditions are different. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one, in terms of the relationship to the, fund, to the, to the religion and the fundamentalism here, the, one of the big differences between me and him is I was raised in it. In eulogy, what happens is how the religion comes into their household is uh, William Oakes, as an 11-year-old boy, is seeing how things just aren't going right in their house, and he tries to fix them. So he's the one who finds religion first before his parents. And, you know, as often happens in a household where, you know, the, where the marriage is going, going wrong, and particularly if there's an only child, the child will often take it upon themselves to try and fix everything. It's, they feel it's their responsibility. And that's what he does in this story. And so he finds religion, and he thinks it's going to save him, and it's going to save them, and he introduces his parents to it. And in the end... They're the ones who stick with it, but he can't. It doesn't work for him except for that first few times. And, you know, we all know the stories of people who, you know, find the great religion and then it kind of wears off. So what happens in his case is instead of being born to it and kind of having to come to grips with it like I did, he finds it, you know, has that brief rush of, I found the answer, and brings it to his parents. And they grab onto it and, yes, this is the answer. And in the end, they stick with it as a way of coping and he leaves. And okay. part of the story is his heartbreak, that it didn't work out for him. Okay, so now let's, that's, that's what happened to him, to, to William. And, but what about you in terms of being biographical for you? Because that's not what happened. It wasn't that you, know, you were the, trying to fix your parents' marriage or the family situation. That's not how you came into it. How did you, you know, what was your family situation in terms of, you know, biographically? Um. You know, just the oldest memories growing up was that, uh, you know, the TV was on, you know, all morning on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, at that time, you know, this is the early 70s we're talking about. And uh, there was just, you know, a series of all kinds, uh, all kinds of, of, of different uh, uh, evangelists talking to us. Uh, and, and we were sitting there watching it. Jimmy Swigert, I used to be mesmerized by him. He was an Jimmy, incredible oh, actor. Yeah. Let, let me tell you, there's Jim, sure there was Jimmy, there was Ernest Angeli. I think he's still going. Uh, there was Catherine Kuhlman. Uh, there was there's a whole bunch of different. Uh, you know, I mean, and then they're they're all still around. I mean, the only thing is now you don't have because we have such narrow cast television. You only find them if you go looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, back then when there was three channels, <laughs> that's what they dominated Sunday morning, and. And uh, we very much uh, got into the routine that whatever was said by the televangelist was golden. And it was, and the thing that we did have is, I, I do remember very much, you know, we were always preparing for the end of the world and the rapture and that kind of thing. Like, you know, there was really no chance. I remember, you know, I remember being told from pulpits that, you know, the 1980s are coming and there is no chance humanity will survive the 1980s. Um, and, but it's okay because, you know, as long as you don't, you know, you say this prayer now and you don't ever sin again and you're ready, Jesus will come and take you away. And then, you know, when all hell breaks out here on earth, you can just watch from above. Mm-hmm. And so how and, did and, the parents support that? I'm always, you know, as a social worker, interested in the family. I mean, so that was, what? They, they, yeah. they believed that. They, they, and they, and then, then that, that's their religion. That's, they, that was their thing. So, you know, they did said it, it terrify was, you growing up in that kind of a situation? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And how yeah, and did the, it terrify you? Because, yeah. yeah. 
And the hard part about it was, you know, child being a child is a difficult thing. I mean, being a person is difficult. Like Judy said, life is hard. Living in this world is a difficult process, right? Yeah, and, and I'd argue any world, but you know, <laughs> this is the one we know. So let's let's just go with this world. And uh, as a child, of course, you know, you we we're limited, but we're not aware that we're limited in what we know. You know, the passage to adulthood often is an understanding that there are limits to what we know. And, 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 and sometimes we don't know what they are. As a kid, we don't know that there are limits. We just know that this is, this, these rules and this reality that is given to us is, is the truth. And that's capital T truth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly in, in, in the way we were growing up. And so uh, the hard part about it was you wanted to feel good that, okay, we're, we're okay, but, you know, I remember feeling terrible, like everyone I go to school with, they're all, they're all doomed, right? Yep. <laughs> they're all doomed, but at the same time, I wasn't doing anything about that, which, of course, uh, you know, there's guilt about not doing anything to try and save your friends, but I think at the core, the reason why I wasn't trying to save my friends is I didn't really believe this, but, you know, because... At what point it, did you realize you didn't believe it? Oh, at uh, you know, ten or at twelve, or did you have to go to you know middle school or high school? I mean, at what point were you kind of questioning because it is difficult. Your world is your parents and your family, and you really haven't separated from 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 them yet. So, when did you realize maybe this isn't true? That's know? hard. That's hard to articulate um, because okay, very early on, I remember being seven, eight years old. I realized there was something different about this, and that it's probably best not to talk about it. Okay, mm-hmm. outside of you know, outside of home and outside of uh, outside of the the church and stuff like that. It's just be so you know. I'd, I'd call that the starting point of knowing there's something wrong here. But to ever dare not believe was uh, was something that you couldn't. I, I couldn't do because to do that, to even contemplate thinking about not believing, was to embrace. Uh, a destiny of, and I'll, I'll just be very clear of what you know. We were told as children that, you know, to be thrown into a pit of darkness where there's an eternal fire that burns your flesh, yet it is not consumed, and it goes on forever. All right, I don't. I mean, I, and, I mean that's what that we're sounds told. like pretty scary stuff to a kid, to anyone, but particularly so, to a kid. Yeah. But, so for so me to articulate, like just, yeah, I just want to say, Ken, that has that feel, and maybe most religions. <laughs> Feel this way, but I mean, there's kind of a cultish element to all of it. This like believing, and it kind of gets over the generations. I think embedded in one's DNA, so it, it's really tough. yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm always wary of the word cult because yeah. it's you know there's there's always degrees, but I, you know I I know what I've come to 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 believe right now, and that is that. Uh, I don't you know if anybody comes to me and says they've got an absolute answer for anything then I, you know, all the warning signs go off. And if anybody tells me, you know, as long as we believe this, everything will be fine, the warning bells go off. And if anybody ever says, don't listen to someone who's argue, who, who tells you something different, the warning bells go off. That insularity, that idea, we know the truth, we're okay, um, that, that to me is, is the starting point. I don't think all religions have that. I mean, I'm not an expert on, on world religions, but I've certainly met people who, 
you know, getting to know them over time, it be, it's become clear to me that they have their religious beliefs, and yet they're very open to the world and very, you know, loving and caring and interactive. They're not re- reclusive. Um, yeah, and I think people pick and choose what works for them in any particular religion. Well, I'm, I'm trying to think growing up when I was probably the age you're describing, seven or eight years old, I uh, grew up in a, a, a Jewish family, but a Reformed Jewish family, and went to uh, Sunday school, and that, you know, the, the new year, the book of the, uh, the Jewish New Year has to do with if you really believe this, like literally that, that you're in the book. If you've been good all year, you're in the book of life. If you haven't, you know, you may and die. Not so during, much, yeah. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> well, the Sunday school teacher told me that at Sunday school. I was terrified. I had never, I really, you know, I took it literally, but I went home to my mother and I hope she's listening to the show today. And I told her that, and I, I couldn't sleep. I was, you know, seven years. And she said, no, that's not, a, that's, that's not what it's about. It's, that's a, I, mean, I don't know if she used the word, that's a literal translation. Um, but she said, that's, that's not true. And she really allayed all my fears, you know, that, uh, you know, whether being good or bad, whether I'm, I'm, the book of life wasn't something that was really a book that's written down that I'm going to die if I did something bad. And spent a lot of time explaining that to me. And, you know, and that was kind of it for me in a very positive way. Yeah, I, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, so um, that's my story. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you know, if you want to talk about my story, I mean, one of the things, you know, um, here I'm in my mid forties now, and I'm only really now starting to talk about this stuff. And I think part of you know writing this book's made me realize, you know, I, I I have a more a clearer understanding of my relationship with the religion I was growing up in, you know, and I resented it for a long time. Now I'm more of the tune of that. Well, okay, this is someone else's religion that I was born into. And I didn't choose it. And, you know, if people want to have it and they're not harming themselves or harming other people, fine. Um, but it sure doesn't work for me. And it's, you know, part of that, I think there's sort of a stage of grief or acceptance in that, right? Like, okay, that's, a, that's my parents' religion. It's not mine. And, uh, and, and you know, I just, that's something I've, I've, I've worked through on my own through my adult years. Now, what about your parents? Are they still alive? Is this something that you're yeah, able yeah, to... Yeah, they're alive, and yeah. this is still their religion. Yeah, yeah, and it can is. You, and you can talk to them about it, and, and you can... Or can you? Oh, uh, we talk a bit, but more they... I think it's more they understand that, you know, they... I, I have my thing, and they have theirs, right? And I think that's very hard for them, in a sense, because... Uh, you know, they have their... their by, by how I live, and uh, and... You know, I, I am excluded from, you know, the great destiny they know, right? Are, are they afraid for you? I mean, if they really believe this, and I, I'm assuming obviously that they do, that you are kind of, con- in their mind, condemned to damnation and not salvation. Yeah, uh, they might be, but uh, they also uh, respect uh, a, a bit of a boundary I've set up on it. So like, look, you know, this is my religion, and... We don't need to talk, you know, for the time, any time we have together, we don't need to talk about this. Because to a certain extent, once, you know, there, there's not much discussion after a certain point. Like, you know, this is absolute truth. And I'm like, well, it's not for me. Yeah, so, you know, how far do you go, right? How, how, yeah. What can you do? What about so, siblings? Do you have siblings? Yeah, yeah I've, I, I have one. Uh, I, have, I, have a, I have a brother. And, and does uh, he, is he, is he part of your parents' belief system or believes in it or is he no no he has a, he has his own way of, of relating to things too and uh you know he's 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 done uh he's done 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 very 
done well for himself in terms of uh, you know understanding himself and you know how he relates to the world and raises his children. Yeah. Okay, what is the history of uh, the evangelical movement? Well, um, you know, you could you could start at many different points, but I mean, an, a really interesting one is uh, actually you know around your you're you're in Albany, right? I'm in Albany and New York City, both. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, in, starting in upstate New York in the mid nineteenth uh, century, there was uh, there was a lot of what was called revival movements uh, going on. Uh, in fact, uh, upstate there's a section there that came to be known as the Burned Over District because the revivals would burn through <laughs> in one direction <laughs> and the other. These traveling preachers, you know, uh, talking about the end of the world and uh, uh, you, you know, the, the, be, be ready, be ready, be ready. And Isn't this where the Mormons start? This is where they found the book, right here. I think it's in upstate New York at, at, in the 19th century. Yeah, the I, 1800s. I think, uh, yeah, I'd have to check check my details on yeah. that. It sounds right. And then there was yeah. a movement westward, essentially, you yeah. know, like a group that had to find space where they could where they could live. Um, but you know, and, and Mormonism, of course, is kind of introducing a whole new brand of, or uh, call it subset of Christianity, I guess, um, with, with with its teachings, but you know, even within, call it um, evangelical Protestantism, uh, there was a, there was a ton of that going on there, and and so that starts. And then uh, you know, by the early 20th century, you have the beginning of what would become the Pentecostal churches uh, hap- happening, and I think that starts out on the West Coast, out uh, near San Fran, or somewhere. I don't know if it's San Fran or near L.A. And a lot of, I mean, a lot of historians who've who've looked at this kind of trace it to. Um, a response to the modernization of life that as life, as the world around people starts to change quickly there's a movement towards a, a religions that simplify everything so right? in other words uh, this sort of coincided with the industrial revolution the turn of yes. the century yeah yes and then or 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 radical changes uh brought by immigration you know who's was written a wonderful book um Karen Armstrong, I think it was in the late 90s, wrote a book called The Battle for God. And she traces, it's sort of like a comparative history of fundamentalism in the three monotheisms. So Judaism, uh, Islam, and Christianity. And she very compassionately uh, traces it to a response to the rise of modernism, which in and of itself is an interesting way to look at the the continuing growth of this in our contemporary times where people, you know, there's a lot of chaos out there and people are very confused uh, uh, in terms of, you know, what is true, what is not, uh, who do we believe, uh, where, what does the future hold, what does the present day hold. So t- to have a religion that simplifies things and gives you a set of rules and say you obey these and you're going to be okay and let's all stick together and let's not talk to anyone who tells us otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, the problem for me is that that's the danger. That, that, as soon as we start thinking that way, the great danger becomes, you know, the insularity um, yeah, of saying, okay, let's not talk to anyone else. Let's just listen to each other. You know, we create in our own social lives that echo chamber that makes us feel like we are fundamentally right mm-hmm. and left to so a So how does extremes. that reflect itself? Because I think that's a very... Uh, Extremely important point. So, how does that reflect now, today, uh, in terms of 
what are we, 2015, in terms of our politics, for instance, because I think what you've said... Oh, (laughs) my. It's a great question. We could talk about this a long time. I mean, I... I, I Six minutes, so let's do it. (laughs) All right. Well, here's what I think. I mean, my own belief in terms of, like, when someone asks me, what should we do about the rise of fundamentalism, as in, this is a problem or this is scary, I encourage anyone to to stop thinking of the fundamentalist as some distant other that might be threatening or weird or kind of, you know, kind of out there and consider how in each of our own lives right now today, we are, we can tend to be insular. We surround ourselves in our social lives with people we agree with, right? We don't want to have a dinner party with someone who has different political views, or social, or, or views on social issues. Online, we tend to, you know, have, on, you know, in social media, we tend to have friends who reflect our own views. And, you know, it, it was an interesting thing, you know, there's been a lot of talk about some of the presidential debates happening, uh, in, you know, by some of the parties in the states where, you know, people are getting, questions are being shouted down. And, you know, there's this finger pointing at the politician saying, hey, they're shouting down the questions, but we're all doing that day-to-day in our lives because the first response we're all trained to do socially when we encounter someone who disagrees with us is either to walk away and find people we agree with or we go to moral outrage and we start shouting people down. And taken to its extreme, that kind of attitude and that approach to life is fundamentalist. Right? What does it lead to, or in, in your well, opinion? Fundamentalism in its extreme can lead to horrible things. It leads to gross violations of the rights of people who, who, who are within those religions, it can, and it can lead to crime as well. I mean, let's, no, those are the negative things. There are obviously, there are people who are in fundamentalist religions because they find comfort there and they find a way of dealing with the world. And they're just, you know, there's just people there living and living their lives. But taken, if you take people to the extremes of, you know, we're right, we're so right, everyone else is wrong, anybody who opposes us will go after them. That's when you have violence and crime. And there's, the world offers us plenty of examples of that being done in the names of various, you know, various interpretations of God. And uh, just in the political arena, I, I, I'm sort of applying what you've said to uh, our Congress, for instance, over these past few years. It's, it's all seen, uh, you know, a policy is seen in black and white terms and nothing gets accomplished. Yes. Yeah. We, you know, I, I think a very important thing that, you know, and, I, and you know, I, I'll, I'll talk about this, but it's, it's hard to do, and I, I fail at it all the time, and I get up and try again, is the idea that if someone questions what I say, their question is not a threat to me. It's not a threat, and it's not an insult either. And if someone, off, if someone offers something that is different from what I believe or what I do, that, that too is not a threat and um, to listen to somebody isn't a threat to what I believe in either. And I, I think that's a personal thing. Um, and I think that we all have better, richer lives by being able to listen to people. And I think extending that to our communities and to our countries and to just general conversations and discourse, the idea of being um, able to listen and not label and not point. Um, to say, oh, wow, there's the threat over there. Well, how did, that threat, how did that threatening group come to be threatening? 
they isolated themselves. They told themselves they're right about everything. They told themselves that anyone who opposes them is evil. Well, take that down to the microcosm of our own day-to-day lives. We mustn't apply that to ourselves. We can't, we can't be that way. That's no way to live. But I think it also, when you take it down to the microcosm of your everyday life, it, personally, the more confident one is in oneself, you're able to <clears throat> embrace other people's ideas. And to not, when, when they disagree with you, you don't see it as an attack on your whole person. It's just a debate of ideas or of, you know, it's, 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 it's a... It may be an intellectual debate, but people, the less comfortable one feels with oneself, then if someone, you view any kind of disagreement as an attack or a critique on your whole being. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. And then the reaction happens. And the reaction is either outburst or walk away. And, uh, you know, and and I, I think that that idea of fostering that confidence in our own selves and, you know, for parents and their children and teachers and their students um, and people with their coworkers day to day, that's, you know, that, that's, that, 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 is, that is life. That, that is engagement with life. So what do you think? I mean, this so, and we have actually literally a couple minutes left, but. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> how do we wrap this up? <laughs> All right, so how do we wrap this up? These are huge questions, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, but I, I was just. Yeah, I know one of the questions, one of the things you do talk about in the book, and maybe people have to go out and just get the book, Eulogy, um, and also read, I did read, Raised on Televangelism, your article uh, in The Humanist was really uh, an excellent piece, so I recommend that oh, people read you. that as well. Yeah, very interesting. Um, you can get the book online, bookstores everywhere. Yes, yep, you can, any... Uh... So yeah, any any of the online carriers, or you can go into your local bookshop, and if they don't have it in stock, uh, they can they can get it. There are uh, we just did our second printing actually. So, Congratulations! Uh, thank you, thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's uh it's exciting stuff. Yeah, no, eulogy was a real um, it was, a, it, was it was a tough tough book to write, and uh, I'm I'm happy with how it turned out, and you know I'm I'm enjoying having these discussions that have come out of having written the book. It's it's a uh, Again, it's just kind of engagement for me. It's 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 fun in its own weird weird way to talk and about this yeah, stuff. Yeah, any real surprises? I mean, has there been any? I mean, because everybody obviously has a different experience when they read the book and all, and when they talk to you or interview you. Any particularly one surprising kind of question that perhaps took you aback that you weren't prepared for? The most surprising thing is how many people, either in interviews like formal interviews like this, or just informally as readers have contacted me to talk about the stories they have had of, you know, way, beliefs or uh, religions that they encountered um, and how they had to cope with that. And you wouldn't have suspected any of this. You wouldn't know it. And, and it's funny, you know, I, I think what ha- one of the things... You know, books are a wonderful place to talk about things that nobody talks about, I guess. Yeah. Because the reader comes to the book alone, and they 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 read it in a safe place of the intimacy of just them and the story, and I realize that yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in this book that people don't normally talk about in their day to day lives, but you know they have had encounters with, and uh, that makes me think yeah, this is worthwhile, you know, to, think, to have those conversations. Well, after reading the book, I think maybe perhaps you need to have a blog where people can. <laughs> Um, you know, can go for, as you say, they read the book, it's personal, private, they can reveal whatever they want or whatever they, you know, don't want, but it maybe is a jumping off point for people to be able to open up and discuss the impact of what religion has on them. Um, That's it's a great, been great idea. Yeah. 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 Um, well. 
we do have to say goodbye, but it was really a pleasure talking to you today, and I, I do thank you for being on the show. Eulogy, by the book, online bookstores everywhere, and the author is Ken Murray. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, Yep, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and uh, you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is award-winning designer and author, Aisha Bursal. Her new book is Design the Life You Love, a step-by-step guide to building a meaningful future. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Catherine, it's great to be here. Thank you. This is a very interesting book because you've taken a concept that I guess at least I hadn't thought about it before, but you are an award-winning designer. You have uh, co-founded a design firm, um, Bursal and Sec in New York City, and you've applied yes. the print. Yeah, and, I, and just to give an overview, you are pl- applying the principles of design to designing one's own life in a way that is, is, has a positive outcome. Is that kind of the theme of the book? 
It absolutely is. It's about um, applying design process and tools to think about your life creatively and with optimism. So, but there are always ways, you know, it sounds good and it sounds great, and I'm not saying it sounds <laughs> simple, but it's not so simple. And so how do you do that? Because as you say, I mean, life is full of lots of constraints, time, money, age, location, circumstances, all those things prevent us, at least we feel, from doing the kinds of things that we would like to do. Um, but as I understand it, you say, okay, we can't have everything, but we can get more out of our lives if we just follow this simple design plan. Um, Tell us what it is. Absolutely. You know, Catherine, the way it all started is um, a couple years ago, I developed my own design process. I've been designing products uh, more than 20 years, and it was this intuitive process, but I knew I was thinking differently, and so I decided to write about it, and out of that um, deconstruction, reconstruction, um, my design process came out, and um, and I always thought um, that my life was my biggest project, and so once I had my design process, I thought, well, if my life is my project, could I apply my process to it? And that really was the beginning, and um, and, you know, what's interesting about design process is it's really all about problem solving. And so, like you said, our life is like this extraordinary uh, problem of, um, you know, combination of challenges and constraints and you can't have everything. And so design gives you um, a methodology, a process to think about that and to Think about your life differently, maybe more creatively. So, Aisha, let's start maybe with your business. What specifically, or let's start, what do you do in your design firm? I know you work with uh, Fortune 500 companies, some of the big companies, you know, Hasbro, uh, GE, uh, there's a whole long list of them. So, what do you do starting, yeah. So, we work with, like you said, we work with Herman Miller, Hewlett Packard, Johnson & Johnson, and... um, and really what um, we do for them is we partner and collaborate with them to design systems and products. And these could be um, office systems, you know, creating places for um, products for offices where people could work um, comfortably. And, um, or it could be things like the Giada de Laurentiis collection for Target, a whole collection of um, kitchen utensils and pots and pans. Um, we do really everything almost like from the simplest pen to the mo- most complex automobile. And in um, our point of view there is really we see ourselves as ambassadors for the user. So how can we make someone's life a little bit more comfortable, um, maybe give them a little bit of joy through the products that they use? So that's the um, yes, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a. Uh, it sounds like I mean, it's a. So many different kinds of products. I mean, do you have a huge, a big team to do this? I mean, this is a whole big creative process. Obviously, um, how many people work with you or for you? You know, collaborating with these companies to solve resolve these uh, design problems. 
you know, I think that's what's interesting about this. Most of our clients are really large um, leading corporations, and we're the small office of about eight people in New York. And so I always say it's the um, the um, kind of small plus big. What we do is um, my partner is BB Sex, who's also my life partner, and uh, myself and our team. Um, we're really passionate about what we do, and we do the creative thinking ourselves. And because we're small, we're agile, and um, we take on a few projects at a time, and our clients really appreciate that. So, um, And we partner with them, and I always say it's um, their expertise um, plus our ignorance. So we get to ask the questions that maybe they don't ask, um, and then um, we try to... Um, to think about the same things differently. They all, you know, how can we turn an old problem um, on its head and come up with a new solution? Okay, can you give us, uh, give us an example? Uh, I mean, that's exciting work, like a, a company coming in, you can talk specifically about the company or the problem, but, you know, they come in, they hire you, they've got a major problem, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, I guess office space or as you, it could be anything, right? So give us an example of how that process works and then we can translate it into how you can use that process in our own lives to better our lives. But like just with a, you know, a specific problem that you've had to deal with in a company for a company. All right. So, um, Catherine, yeah. um, tell me which, which story would you like to hear? Um, office systems or um, toilets? Toilets. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope you'd say that because <laughs> that's one of my favorite um, projects. I, um, you know, not well, I many just had people... to buy a new toilet, so I'm really into yeah. this because and it was a problem <laughs> because it had to fit in the space and I can go on and on. So, you know, toilets, let's I know. go with that one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, not many designers um, can say that they've designed the toilets and um, for a while, um, I was known as the queen of toilets, so it's very dear to me. But what's interesting about toilets is that a toilet, um, well, let's talk about the toilet seat. Um, and if you were to, for a moment, separate those two words and say, okay, it's toilet, but it's also seat. And what's a seat? It's a chair. And so that realization gets us to think about the toilet seat as a comfortable chair. It, it should really be ergonomic, and when you sit in it, you should feel um, as comfortable as you'd in a chair, except that it has a hole in it. So that was my um, biggest insight um, when I designed a toilet seat for this, um, well, for Toto. And, um, and really, um, instead of designing it so that it's just a plastic cover for your toilet, um, we took the liberty to say, you know, it should be large and um, the back should be a little bit uh, curved upwards so it supports the back of, you know, the small of your back and the front of it should be curved down a little bit so that it doesn't bite into your legs when you're sitting in it. And so that really was the, um, um, I wish I could show you a picture, but um, you could see it on our website. But that idea that... Um, a toilet seat is a seat, like a chair, um, was a breakthrough idea and um, got us to um, develop and um, design what unofficially became known as the 
world's most um, comfortable toilet seat. Okay, most comfortable, but there are some constraints. Like, for instance, you're talking about if does one seat or one toilet fit all. I mean, you have people who are very large, men, women, uh, children. So how do you make one toilet be comfortable? Because you were talking about comfort and contour. Does that fit everyone? Yes, what you do... Um Actually, it comes in two sizes, so um, small and large, but it, um, it's like most of your dining chairs. You know, you work on the um, dimensions in such a way that it will be comfortable for the um, maximum number of people. The greatest mm-hmm. good for the greatest number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So, all right. So that's that's how you solve the Toto toilet seat. And you've been known as the, I should have, I should have spoken to you last week before I bought the toilet. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) okay, so now let's, how do you translate? You had that problem. They came to you. They wanted the best toilet in the world and um, you designed it for them, for the company. So that process, now how do you translate that into how we would, make our own lives better and design our own lives more meaningfully and yes how do you go from how do you um, do that yeah what are the principles how do you how do you do that so the um, what you do is um, um, the design process that I've developed deconstruction reconstruction has four steps and uh, it starts with deconstructing um, just like I was saying about the toilet seat, once you take apart toilet seat into two pieces, toilet and seat, you're, what you're doing is a very simple deconstruction. And so same thing with, um, with your life. You can um, deconstruct it and look at what are the building blocks of my life. And these things could be things like uh, my family, friends, um, health, work. And then you continue with those building blocks, and then um, you take those apart. And what that does is really it gives you a sense of what are the ingredients in your life, the parts and pieces that make up your life. So then the second step is um, can you shift your point of view um, so that you can see those um, ingredients of your life from a different life. So this is where the the creative center of the process is. And there are a couple of exercises there. One of my um, favorites um, is about um, thinking about your heroes. Um, and that's really about when you do any design um, project, you need inspiration to think about um, kind of open up your mind to different possibilities. So heroes is, is about... Um, inspiring you about your life. So how, how does one get inspiration about their life? It's about, um, well, you think about other people. So here, Heroes is about who are the people that you know or you know of um, that inspire you in your life, that, um, that you're interested in, that they have qualities that you aspire to. And um, that, for example, helps us connect with our values, um, and our values become the foundation of our life, um, just like um, values in any design 
and sustain the um, design process. So, I so say, shall I tell you the third step? But yes, please. Oh, I, yeah, I want to go back a little because obviously uh, the assumption is that one has a problem. I have a problem. Things aren't working for me in my life. And so I want to make some changes. And so you're saying I have to deconstruct sort of like what are the ingredients in a, in a, in a cake that you bake, I guess, right? Um, exactly. And in, in the book, actually, I talk about the soup. So soup. You're right on. Okay. Yes. So this, yeah. And I take it apart and I look at it and look at all the different parts and what I'm going to do is I assume I still have the same parts or the ingredients in the soup, if that's the example, but I'm going to put them together in a different way. Um, what, what am I going yes. to do? What's the next step to make the changes? So the, yeah. So um, you're absolutely right about the, um, you know, when you look at it, one of the things that I wanted to mention is um, once you make that ingredient list, um, I wanted to ask you, tell me, how many, on how many pages do you think that fits? Like if you deconstructed your life in a, you know, you opened your notebook and can uh, you give me a That's a good question. You know, how many pages would it be? I guess if you were asking me to put, um, I, I could, you could get really specific, I guess, on, because in each category, let's say family would be one category of deconstructing your life, right? But uh, do you want to know immediate family or do you want to know family of origin, children, cousins? I mean, you could put a whole family genealogy, let's say. That could be, you know, quite a few pages. Or are you just talking about generally my relationship to my family? I, would, I mean, it, that would depend on what you were asking, I love how you think it's, um, you know, I think the, um, first of all, I love the idea of just taking, deconstructing your whole family and, uh, you know, that, that gets you to your family tree. But um, in the moment when people, um, in the deconstruction is, you know, you can put anything in it. So it could be. Um, things from the past, it could be present, it could be the future. It's really in the moment. Um, people um, deconstruct their life as um, it comes to their mind. It's just kind of you go with your gut. Um, but really, if you don't get into the whole ge- genealogy, it usually fits on two pages. Um, so your, ho- your whole life, um, deconstructed um, more or less is um, can be contained in two pages, which um, is really a, gives people a great sense of control that um, they can capture their life um, and it's tangible and it's um, um, you know it's not a whole book. So then the um, you know if we imagine that like that's your ingredients list and. If this was a soup, you know, this is where you would list, you know, um, let's say it's a chicken soup, onions and water and chicken and, you know, herbs and carrots and that sort of thing. Um, the, um, but then you could start thinking about, well, what if I wanted to make a vegetarian version of this? And so I would take the chicken out and I would put the tofu, maybe I, I'd put tofu in. So that kind of changing and starting to ask, 
what if questions is what happens in the point of view. And in, similarly with your life, you could start to think um, whether it's through um, thinking about your values through your heroes, um, you know, what's really important to me. And, you know, maybe some of these parts and pieces I either need to change or um, dedicate more time to them or take them out. Um, and that's really the... Um, the, air, the moment where you ask what if questions. Um, and another way to um, be creative about your life is thinking through it um, using metaphors. So, um, you know, if you were to think about your life through a metaphor, what would you say? Like, um, my metaphor for my life is a tree. And um, the idea of the tree is that it helps me think about I grew up in Turkey, so um, my roots are in Turkey, and that's where um, that's my upbringing and culture, and that's where I learned about design first. And then my trunk is in New York. That's where um, I grew and um, became stronger and um, had my studio. and And the metaphor then helps me think about well, if that's my um, past and present. What's my future if I'm a tree? And um, I realized that if I'm a tree, my future is about um, bearing fruit and having seeds and um, helping other um, um, trees grow. And literally, this helped me with the idea that um, my future should be about sharing what I know and um, my design process. And of course, I should write a book. And of course, I should do seminars and workshops and um, and kind of um, share this idea of um, design process and um, how you can apply it to your life. So that so it makes everything manageable. I mean, I, this whole process. I think. I mean, it's such a wonderful idea. Deconstructing. And I was, uh, you know, I when you said what would will you describe your metaphor for life, but I don't know what mine would be. I think I'd have to think about it after the show. What would be other examples or, or that other people have brought to you that, you know, that would be a metaphor for their life, besides a tree? Oh, there's so many um, wonderful metaphors that people um, come up with, and there's things like, my life is um, climbing up a mountain, um, so then you think about on the mountain and think about, well, um, sometimes the, the slope is really steep, and, um, but then you come to an incredible vista, and then it makes all the um, trouble worthwhile. Um, and if you're climbing a mountain, do you have a roadmap? Do you have, have a compass? Um, do you have a guide? Um, how do you practice for it? And so it's all these ideas um, of you know, the metaphor gives you different hooks um, to think about your life and then um, think about, well, do I have those things um, or do I need um, to get a Sherpa who's my mentor, who's my guide? Um, and so other metaphors are things like um, a dinner party, um, you know, people who see their life as a dinner party, um, people um, who see their life as um, scuba diving, um, full of adventure, but there's always a boat that waits for you, a little security that takes you back um, back to land when you need it. Um, and then 
I tell people who come to my um, workshops, look, um, because we're really learning by doing and we're doing it in the moment, um, if you're stuck and you can't think of a metaphor, just Google life metaphors. There's thousands of them. Um, and really the idea is to... Exactly. And so, but what I love about metaphors is that they help us think about complex things through things we know or that we're familiar with. So um, it gives us a, a very manageable way to um, imagine our life and think about it differently, um, much more um, kind of poetically. Um, but then it also um, helps us um, kind of visualize it. And I often say what we can visualize, we can make happen. Yeah, it gives so, us the tools um, to be able to go ahead, to be able to do something, as you say, and to manage. And, but I, and I think what happens today, unfortunately, is many of us just get bogged down. We, we don't even see the parts to our lives. We're just so bogged down in, in what we're doing. So people, we, we start drinking, we start doing drugs, we start doing all kinds of unhealthy things that make things worse rather than, than doing exactly what you say, doing this deconstruction and taking a look at your life. Um, I just, you know, then, we only, um, yeah. Catherine, sorry, I didn't mean to um, cut you off. I just wanted to say that the other part of it is, you know, you need to reconstruct what you've deconstructed. So um, you need to put your life back together. And that really is um, key to designing something. Um, you have to make choices. So the, um, the other side of deconstruction is, what are your choices? Where do you want to spend your time and energy? And um, if you can identify those things, um, knowing that you can't have everything, um, you know, if you can identify those things, then you, what you're doing is you're simplifying your life and making um, a roadmap for yourself and saying, well, these are the areas where I'm going to um, spend time and energy um, and that could be, you know, you could give yourself a, a, a timeline, like I'm going to do this for a year. Um, you can give yourself five years. And, you know, sometimes it could be just a month long, like for the next month, um, these are the three things that I'm going to focus on. You know, there's so much more, obviously, in your book and to talk about. We only have a minute left. This went by very quickly. Oh, really? Already? <laughs> Already we have a minute left. But I, so I want to say, I want to say the name of your book again, Design the Life You Love, A Step-by-Step Guide to Building a Meaningful Future. And we've been talking to <clears throat> the author, Aisha Bursal. And could you give us the website we can go to? Because obviously you do have workshops, you have the book, there's so much going on, and, and we want to be privy to that. Absolutely. The, the um, website is ishebersell.com, and that's A-Y-S-E-B-I-R-S-E-L.com. And Catherine, it's really for anyone who's interested in designing their life and who, who are perhaps at the turning point and want to think about, okay, what do I do next? Uh, what do I want out of the next couple of years? Um, and if, for anyone who has that question, I think um, designing your life um, is a great process and um, helps you imagine the life you love. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It really was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Catherine. It was We're my gonna have, pleasure. 
We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.